The English Civil War, 1639 to 1660. The Trials of Edmund Ludlow, Part 6. Of the regicides whose fate we can follow to the end, Edmund Ludlow was the last survivor. From time to time there had been other attempts on his freedom and on his life, but the wily old soldier's instinct to remain in familiar territory, surrounded by faces he knew, rather than flee into the unknown and be at the mercy of an anonymous assassin, proved a sound strategy to the very end. In late 1680, he learned of the death of Henry Martin, despite his central role in the preparation of Charles I's trial and his stern republicanism. Martin managed to escape execution. There was an element of reluctance in royalist circles to make such a well-known figure into a martyr. There was also an acknowledgment that Martin's advocacy had spared the lives of some of their own number after the king's execution. Martin's fear of being exiled overseas came to nothing. He was first sent to Holy Island off Northumberland's coast before moving to Windsor Castle in 1665. But Charles II balked at having a regicide so near him, and in an echo of Martin's famous dismissal of the late king's presence at the racecourse in London, he ordered his removal. From 1688, Martin was imprisoned in Chepstow Castle, accompanied by his mistress Mary, while his wife remained behind in the marital home at Berkshire. In his late seventies, this man of boundless sensual appetites died, choking on his dinner. Ludlow's companions in Switzerland all predeceased him. William Cawley, who had been frail at the time of his flight from the Restoration England, died at Vevey in 1667 at the age of 65. He had been one of the commissioners for demolishing superstitious pictures and monuments in London, whose brief had culminated in the destruction of the stained-glass windows of Henry VII's chapel in Westminster and of Queen Henrietta Marie's chapel in Somerset House. Her altarpiece, designed by Rubens, was cast into the Thames. Cawley was laid to rest in the handsome, unfussy Protestant church at St. Martin, set back by Lake Geneva on a gentle hill. Nicholas Love had felt sure that the great trial of January 1649, that Charles I would be acquitted, and when proved wrong, he had become rich through the acquisition of confiscated royal and church property. While friends decided to trust the clemency seemingly promised by the Declaration of Breda, Love wisely fled, being resolved not to trust the mercy of enraged beasts of prey. He died at the age of 74 at the end of 1688 and was buried near to William Cawley. Andrew Broughton, one of the clerks at Charles's trial, had arrived in Switzerland in 1662 after initially hiding in Hamburg with Nicholas Love. He, Love, and Ludlow had traveled to the audience with the Lords of Bern to present the regicides thanks to the senators for their protection from royalist revenge. Broughton died in 1688 at the age of 85, after a quarter of a century at Vevey. He was also committed for burial in St. Martin's. These deaths left Ludlow as a solitary Swiss exile to hear of the death of Charles II, and the even more thrilling news that James II was overthrown. He had remained fascinated by the events in Britain and still maintained an alluring charisma to those who regarded him as the ultimate invincible opponent of the British crown. In the mid-1660s, the Dutch had sounded out Ludlow to see if he would aid them in their conflict against Charles II. But Ludlow never forgave the Dutch for their betrayal of Barkstead, Colbert, and O'Kay, which he believed left them tarnished with blood guilt. He refused to help them despite their common cause. 
1684, the year before Charles II's death, Ludlow was the man the plotters turned to, asking him to raise the standard against the Stuarts in the west of England. He declined, claiming that he was in no way disposed to the thing, saying he had done his work, he thought, in this world, and was resolved to leave it to others. Such a rebellion took place in the southwest of England the following year. It was led by the Duke of Monmouth, Charles II's favorite illegitimate son. Monmouth had been a popular figure in England as well as commander of its army before overreaching himself and being banished abroad. On the death of his father, he returned to England, hoping the people would flock to his Protestant cause in a stand against his Catholic uncle, James II. But the invasion was premature and poorly planned. The new king had yet to provoke huge unpopularity, and only a ragtag force of 4,000 many armed with pitchforks followed the duke. Monmouth resorted to a desperate nocturnal attack on the superior royalist forces at Sedgemoor, but the element of surprise was lost when a pistol was discharged into the night. James II's favorite, John Churchill, led the king's forces in a complete rout of the rebels, while his commanding officer, Lord Faversham, was delayed from appearing on the battlefield because it was said he insisted on eating his breakfast first. Faversham was further waylaid through the problems of straightening his wig and cravat. Monmouth, despite tearful pleadings, was sentenced to death. He was beheaded in a flurry of inept axe blows on Tower Hill, the first strike a glancing wound that made the Duke look up in disbelieving pain. This, Jack Ketch, the executioner, lost his nerve. He repeated hacks failed to do the job. He eventually threw down his blade in defeat before being forced by irate crowds to complete his task with a retrieved axe and then a knife. James II was determined to make an example of all the rebels and sent Judge George Jeffreys, Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench, into the southwest to dispense vengeance in his name. One of those who was arrested was Dame Alice Leslie, the elderly woman of the regicide John Leslie who had been felled by a blunderbuss in that Swiss churchyard 21 years earlier. She was accused of harboring fugitive rebels on her property. Richard Nelthorpe was discovered hiding behind the chimney in her family home. Moyle's court, John Hicks, a nonconformist preacher, was also found on her land. Dame Alice was a lady of some standing in the community, a mother of 11 children. She was in her late 60s when Monmouth invaded. As judge, Jeffreys was, of course, supposed to remain detached. However, on August the 27th, 1685, as the case against Dame Alice was heard in Winchester Castle, he revealed himself to be an eloquent addition to the prosecution. He reminded the jury of what the dame's late husband had been guilty of. I will not say what hand her husband had in the death of that blessed martyr. She has enough to answer for, and I must confess it ought not be one way or the other to make an ingredient into this case what she was in her former times. But it was clearly that Jeffreys was eager to underline her connection by marriage to the shocking execution of the King James's father. The jurors, troubled by the sight of the old lady repeatedly falling asleep while on trial for her life, tried to persuade the judge that they had enough doubts about her guilt to make conviction impossible. But Jeffreys would have none of it, insisting there is full proof as proof can be. But you are the judge of the proof. For my part, I thought there was no difficulty in it. The jury remained in an agitated huddle for 15 minutes, for finally and unhappily declaring Dame Alice's guilt. She was sentenced to be burned at the stake, a punishment that on appeal was commuted to beheading. 
Some say she gave a dignified speech from the scaffold, hastily erected in Winchester Market Square, while others reported her as being old and dozy, and reported that she died without much concern. The killing of this vulnerable pillar of the community appalled many, while Judge Jeffries went on to dispatch a further 300 people connected with Monmouth's rebellion. The stain of Dame Alice's blood has clung to his reputation with particular stubbornness. The regicide's widow was the unwanted distinction of being the last woman ever to have been beheaded by the order of a court in English history. Three years later, the invasion by William of Orange resulted in the bloodless, glorious revolution. In 1689, a new regime was looking to suppress support in Ireland for the exiled James II. Ludlow's name was again discussed as a possible leader of the English force. His effectiveness there, 30 years earlier, was recalled with admiration. Ludlow said goodbye to friends in Switzerland, feeling it was at last time for him to return to England and to help the latest manifestation of God's cause. He was greeted by joyful nostalgia by other survivors of the glory days of the new model army and the Republic of the Commonwealth. His lodgings in London bustled with family and old colleagues, but there was still powerful enemies for the lieutenant general to contend with. Ludlow's confiscated estate had been granted to Sir Edward Seymour, an arrogant and unpopular speaker of the House of Commons. Concerned that Ludlow would look to reclaim his property, Seymour's brother-in-law, Sir Joseph Trendenham, launched a preemptive attack in the Parliament. Trendenham was quick to remind members of Parliament that Ludlow's arrest warrant was still live. He must therefore be punished for high treason. To what can these persons pretend, Trendenham say, in reference to the returning exiles like Ludlow, but to bring us into the same anarchy as formerly? While sympathizers tried to delay on the vote on his fate, Ludlow slipped away to the Netherlands. Soon afterwards, King William announced that Ludlow must indeed be held account for his part in Charles I's death and offered a reward of 200 pounds for his arrest. Ludlow returned to Vevey. He died there in late 1692 at the age of 72. His widow had a Latin inscription borrowed from the works of Ovid placed over the door of their home. Om solum forte patricia que patrice. To the brave man, every land is a fatherland, because God, his father, made it. And that's the end of Mr. Ludlow, who did quite a job of staying alive. Now, the sources for this, The Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared Execute Charles I by Spencer, History of England by Thornton, Lockyer, and Smith, English Civil War 1640-1660 by Warden. So I hope you enjoyed that, and as always, don't forget to come by the website, summahistorica.com or historyaccordingtobob.com, and ask a question, leave a comment, check out our merchandise, and if you like what we're doing, please feel free to support us. Thank you very much.